Okay, do you want to grab your Bibles? If you want to grab your Bibles and turn to page 82, we're going to continue from here from Leviticus. Uh, if you are new, Leviticus is a book about how uh, God's people in all their uncleanness can draw close to a, a holy, holy separate God. And tonight we have the, really, the pivotal chapter in the whole book, which is Leviticus chapter 16. And Mark's going to read that, and then Nicky will read from Hebrews. Okay, starting at chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain, in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he, would, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the, the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the, the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward a live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert 
in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in a holy place and put on his his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward he may come into the camp. The bull and the goat for the sin offerings whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh and offal are to be burned up. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward he may come into the camp. This is to be a lasting lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or an alien living among you. Because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of rest and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar and for the priests and all the people of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Uh, The second reading is from Hebrews, chapter 9, starting at verse 11, which is on page 850. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. 
In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Good evening. My name is Ronaldo. Uh, I'm a student minister here at church. Uh, it's wonderful to be here with you and to be able to share God's word. How about I pray for us before uh, I start speaking? Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, calm our hearts, um, that you would remove all distractions uh, that occupy our minds, that we may be uh, single-minded about what you have to teach for us tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, I don't know if you know, but uh, for the last couple of years, one of my great privileges for, for work was to work at the University of Sydney as a campus pastor. And uh, in that time, I had the great opportunity to meet up with many students. Uh, students are really interesting, I think, because they're at that stage in their life, moving from adolescence to adulthood, where they're starting to see the seriousness of the decisions they make and the things that they do in life. Uh, and in talking to students... Uh, you not only have the sort of moral dimension of their decisions and the fact that perhaps you know, things may be right or wrong, but that more sort of troubling aspect of living life, which is the things that they do that cause them to feel so unclean, uh, things that cause them to feel so ashamed, uh, cause them to feel so dirty. And as I pass to them, I think to myself, what hope is there for them? Or what hope is there in life? when uncleanness uh, just is so prevalent, when uh, in our conscience you just feel so yucky and gross uh, because of those evils from the heart that just contaminate our lives, our actions, our thoughts, and our minds. And I think if we stop now, uh, we've lived life a little bit longer than university students, and we apply God's microscope to our life, I think there'd be much moral filth uh, that uh, we would see in our lives. And what answer is there to that? What hope is there when our lives are so deeply stained? And what Leviticus 16 says is that you need a day or a moment, uh, a day of atonement. And in Leviticus 16, what we get here is a highly de detailed account of this day, uh, what it was supposed to uh, achieve and how it was supposed to be conducted. It's a highly detailed account of a very specific ceremony and as Christians, right, our day of atonement, uh, we all we know and thankfully uh, don't take for granted, is when Christ died on the cross for us. But 
before we get there, we need to spend time in Leviticus 16 because it provides all the background for us. And another thing that I want you to do is I want you to switch your mind from the courtroom, from sort of legal categories, from justification, righteousness, from right and wrong categories to the world of the temple, to the world of the tabernacle, to the world of animals, priests, blood, ritual, sacrifice and ceremony. Uh, That's the realm that we're operating in here. That's where our minds need to be. So I think the first point I want to make is, what did the Day of Atonement, this big thing, actually achieve? Or what did it show? I think the first point is, the Day of Atonement showed the Israelites, or showed us our uncleanness. Have a look at verse 16 um, of Leviticus 16. If you could turn back to that. It says this, In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And similarly with verse 18, then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. I think what we need to do is we need to notice a starting point at the Day of Atonement. Uh, before we celebrate what it actually did and achieved, we need to actually see what it was actually addressing. And the key problem is uncleanness. Uncleanness is the biggest thing. Uh, that's what it says in verses 16, uncleanness of the Israelites and their rebellion. So the first, uncleanness, relates to that life of purity. God has, been, has saved these people to live a life that's holy for him in service of him. And there was a life by which they lived, which was clean and unclean. And Paul uh, rightly explained what those things were to us last week. Now, in terms of rebellion, it relates to that corrupt attitude that defies God's good intentions for their lives. And in the world of Leviticus, uncleanness is the category that describes their sin. Not some moral boundary that they're crossing. That's, That's the law court thing. It's uncleanness is the dominant category. And what this Day of Atonement, this highly detailed ceremony says, first of all, is so ungreat is Israel's uncleanness that it even defiled and polluted the tent that was in the midst of their community, in the center of their community. It's the place that God lived. And through the year, their sins would mount up so much that it would actually pollute and defile the tabernacle or this tent. And if you're an Israelite, that would be crushing news for two reasons. Crushing news for two reasons. The first is this, either destruction or or desertion. You see, an unclean tabernacle where God dwells meant either a holy God would destroy all that was unclean, he'd actually just consume his people, or he'd actually remove his presence from his people. He'd desert them. Clean or holy can't ever be in the midst of that which is unclean and unholy. But I think the second problem is this. They're actually making a mess of the place that cleans their mess. They're making a mess of the place that cleans their mess. This is the place that they offer all those personal sacrifices, which we saw at the the beginning of Leviticus, uh, for their sins. But even in the course of doing that, they're actually polluting this place that was meant to be cleaning the mess of sin in their lives. 
Israel is left with a really scary question. If you were an Israelite, this is the question you'd be thinking, what can I possibly do if I'm making a mess of the place that's actually meant to be cleaning my mess? I mean, how filthy and rotten must I be? Now, as Christians, we don't have a tabernacle at all that needs to be atoned for. So what does this actually say to us as Christians? I think there's two sort of humbling things that it teaches us. Uh, A, the unclean can't come into the presence of the holy God. I suppose Leviticus is speaking to you, you, whoever you are in this room, if you think that perhaps you could stand before the living God. Uh, One of the things I often hear from people is this. Uh, When I die and meet God, uh, we'll be like good mates. I'll buy him a beer, we'll have a good chat, just be like good old times. And you see what that attitude presupposes, doesn't it? It assumes that we're cleaner than we actually are, or that God is less holy or less majestic and awesome than he actually is. I mean, it's similar, isn't it? If you look at the beginning of chapter 16, the whole context of this chapter was Aaron, the high priest, his two sons dying. If you go back to chapter 10, uh, there was this moment of climatic celebration. Uh, Israel had offered an awesome sacrifice, and they knew that God was with them because great fire had just spread out from under the tent. And it was just like, wow, we have an awesome God. He is with us. And two of Aaron's sons, Nadib and Abihu, were like, that was freaking awesome. Let's do that again. And so they grab a firecracker and go, let's light it and go in and just see what it could do. We want fire again. And bang, in an instant, they're dead. The unclean going into the presence of a holy God. And B, or secondly, the far-reaching effects of uncleanness. If Israel could defile and pollute the very place where God lived, the very place that he set up to give them, to actually forgive their sins, then it's pretty, it's pretty wrong to assume to think that we here as 21st century Christians or otherwise would think that actually, you know, I'm, I'm okay in God's eyes. I mean, if Israel could make a mess of the place that actually should clean their mess, it shows us that we're actually deeply more stained by our sin than we could probably give ourselves credit for. And just as Israel's impurities reach the middle of their community, so our own impurities in our lives reach before God. Uh, they cut us off from him. And if you're not someone who's a Christian, then you need to understand it today, don't you? That actually you're not as special or as clean or as holy as you'd like to think you are. That actually before the true and living God and by his standards, you're actually quite unclean. Well, the Day of Atonement didn't just convict people of their sin or of their uncleanness. It actually did something about it. It cleansed them. It's not just a day of spotlighting sin. It's not just a day that deals with it. It's also a day that deals with it. I think this is the second point that it makes. is The day of atonement actually cleanses and removes. I think essentially it's like a spring cleaning day, the day of atonement, uh, where God cleanses and removes his sin, the sin of the people. I don't know about you, but uh, in my family, my mum is an absolute clean freak. Uh, she loves a really, really clean house. And when we were younger, uh, she worked multiple jobs. She left the house to three children who kind of left it in a pretty unruly state. And they got pretty mucked up through the year. But there'd be this one moment of the year just before spring would come, which is probably the point we're in now in August. And mum would, uh, she'd set up the day of cleaning or the day of spring cleaning. 
that all the family would get involved in. And uh, the night before, she'd prepare all the cleaning products. She'd get the filthy old dirty clothes that we'd put on, that we'd use. And essentially, that's what's happening in sort of Leviticus 16 from verses 3 to 10. God is preparing his people. He's getting the proper uh, materials needed in verses 3 to 10. And this cleaning begins from the very inside, from this tent uh, is where it happens. And then it spreads to the outside of the community. The inside is cleaned, then everything that's impure is removed and taken out of the community. I'm reflecting, I think, that's what we need, isn't it? Uh, If you're someone who just feels so deeply stained by all the things that you've done wrong, you need cleaning from the very midst of who you are and the midst of your community, and it needs to be taken away and removed to the very depths of the outside of your community. Essentially, that's the movement of Leviticus 16 from verses 11 to 22. It's happening from the very center of who they are, from the very center of their community where God dwells, and it's taking this, it's cleaning this tent and tabernacle and then moving it out beyond their midst. So it cleanses from the inside. And this is what the, the, the priest does. He does a comprehensive spring clean of the tabernacle. That's essentially what it is. Verse 16 again, it says this, In this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of their uncleanness and the rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is amongst them in their midst of uncleanness. Now, this word atonement appears like 20 times in this, in this chapter, so I think I should just explain it to, to you. The word atonement essentially means to wipe clean. Uh, it's to just wipe clean. Or to put it negatively, it's to purge of impurities. And the cleaning agent used is blood. Now, that's a little strange because, uh, if anything, blood stains, doesn't it? Uh, I was on a holiday just recently, and I was surfing, and a guy was in the water with me, and this massive wave came over our heads, and it just sort of barreled us around. And he got up, and it turned out the fin had cut the top of his head. And uh, it t- he, later he needed five stitches. And as he got up, blood is just seeping down everywhere. It's in the water. The water is just pink. It's all over his body. Blood is just all over him. And it actually stains him. It actually, it actually marks him out. We get onto the beach, and the whole beach is looking at us. Like, there's just blood gushing out over his pasty white body, and it's just gross. And God's saying blood cleans. Like, how does that work? Well, the reason is the blood represents the life of a creature. And when when you have blood in your hands, it means life's been taken. And what it's saying to you is that a serious cost has been born. A serious cost has been born. Life's been taken to then cleanse this place that's become unclean. And it's because of that blood, the blood makes atonement. The blood cleans, the blood wipes. It wipes all the impurities and uncleanness. Now what I want you to do is I want you to picture for the moment where Israel, um, that this church building is not actually a church, that we're in the midst of a massive courtyard. Uh, There's fences all around you. And uh, what you've got is, where I'm standing, you've got a massive altar that burns the animals that they, that they sacrifice. Think of it as just a large barbecue, guys. A massive barbecue. Uh, behind me is the holy place. From about here onwards, you've just got a massive tent. And it's kind of fitting, actually, that we've got that little sort of table back there because there's a table for a lampstand and another little altar for the bread. And that's called the, most, that's called the holy place. 
And then what we get is we've got the most, the most holy place. This is the place that God's presence was actually in. This is where he dwelled. And it's kind of cool because we've got a curtain here, which is what you had in the real temple. And that's Mark Smith's office. That's, that's the most holy place, right? And you get, you get access into this thing once a year. This is where God lives. And in it is where the high priest goes. Now imagine me as a high priest. I take uh, my bull, my ram. This is the sacrifice for myself because I'm in the mess with you guys. I take two goats on behalf of all you guys. That's what I do. And that's, that's what it says for verses 3 to 6. I then cast lots for, for the two goats. One's going to be a sin offering. I'm going to slaughter it and its blood's going to come out. Another is going to be a scapegoat. I then take a, a knife I grab the bull and I slit its throat and blood's just seeping out everywhere. Animals are going crazy. There's just blood and guts and I'm collecting it into a bucket. I carry it up to the altar. I grab some coals is what I do. And I grab some incense and I creep in to the most holy place. It turns out actually that they had a a belt around them just in case the high priest didn't make it out alive. They could pull him out. I'm about to encounter the living God. I peel back the curtain. I grab the coals in a bucket. I throw incense over it so smoke goes up. I'm a human. I can't see the true living God. The smoke is a thing that will protect me from the presence of God. I grab the blood and I just start splashing it all over the atonement cover. It's this little ark that contained the law that Moses wrote that Israel held on to. It was a sign of God's promises that he'd be with God's people. And I'm splashing blood all over it from my sin, from the bull. I come out back to the very spot, grab the goat, and I slaughter that as well. Blood's coming out everywhere. It's just messy at this point. I go back into the holy place, and I'm splashing blood all over the place. I come out, I come out to the altar, I splash blood here. It's hot and steamy. There's just blood. And I splash blood there. And that's the thing that cleans. And if you're an Israelite, that's what it's showing you, that... To be clean, a serious cost needs to be borne. Life needs to be taken. That's, that, that is how serious your sin is. And the result is in atoning the place, you're actually cleansing yourself. And that's where you see it in verse 17. No one is to be in a tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement, a.k.a. to cleanse or wipe clean the most holy place until he comes out. Having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. In cleansing the tabernacle, this place that God's at, the midst, in the middle of their community, the very center of their community, they're actually cleansing themselves. But not only are they cleansed, but the sin's removed. It's actually removed, it's taken far from them. And that's the second aspect. He takes the second goat. And he lays his hands on it. And he confesses all the wickedness of Israel. And you see that there in verses 20 to 22. You could imagine that, couldn't you? Like just the high priest, just thinking of the year where they're like, wow, we're God's people, but boy, have we just stuffed up. And I confess and speak aloud the sins of all the people. A man takes that goat and the sins have been transferred and he leads it out into the wilderness where those sins are no longer in their community. God no longer sees it on his people, but they've actually been taken away.
That's the Day of Atonement. And what I want to tell you is, as Christians, Christ and what he did on the cross for us is our ultimate Day of Atonement. Christ is the sin offering and the scapegoat. You see, in Jesus, we have the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, He's the ultimate sin offering whose blood was shed. And he's the ultimate scapegoat. And from God's word, I can tell you now that it doesn't matter what you've done in your life. You have complete cleansing and the removal of your sins through Jesus. I don't know what you've done to pollute yourself. Maybe you killed somebody. Maybe you were driving along early one morning and you hit a cyclist and you did a hit and run. I mean, it happens. Maybe you're just feeling gross and just yucky because you've been in an adulterous relationship. Maybe you ruined a marriage and you know your soul's unclean. Maybe you've harbored onto bitterness and resentment or envy to someone in our church or someone in your workplace, where every time you see them, you just want to take what they want or you delight in some sort of fantasy uh, to, see them, to see them lose the very thing that you envy. Maybe you hold on to malicious thoughts. Maybe there's just someone you hate so much. You just picture that certain person and you just envision yourself hurting them or seeing them get hurt. Maybe you've got a vile mouth that just spits out all kinds of criticisms and slanders and mocks people and that you just constantly lie to preserve some sort of image about yourself. Maybe what comes out of your mouth is just nothing wholesome but toxic. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what I've done. As I prepared this sermon, it's just been a really sobering thing to think about all the things that have made me unclean, have caused me to be blemished, have caused me to defile myself and pollute my soul. And it's just a gross feeling, isn't it? That gross feeling of yuck. And you're probably sitting in church tonight just thinking, I don't really want to be here. I'm in the presence of God and his people. And I just feel awful. But you know what? In Jesus offering his life on the cross, we have the day of atonement. The day of atonement. The Day of Atonement. Now, I know for some of you, if you've done some of these things, if you have killed someone, I mean, you're going to need to tell the state. But you can be sure that before Jesus, you can have complete cleansing and removal of your sins. There may be ongoing psychological effects of whatever it is that you've done that over time need healing and work. But before the true and living God, before Jesus... You could be cleansed. Cleansed from your sin. Not just cleansed, but it could also be removed. Just as for Israel, they were cleansed from the center and then it moved to the outside. And therefore, we have no reason to feel ashamed or filthy or gross before God. And therefore, when it comes to us as a community of God's people, uh, there's no real basis for us to outcast or exclude one another, is there? I mean, this is the year of the local church. Uh, Because if Jesus is your priest, and if by faith you've accepted the sacrifice that he's made on your behalf, 
then where the community of the cleansed, where the community of the cleansed, where the community of those whose sins have been completely removed. And you know what? There's just no reason to exclude anyone from our fellowship, and there's no reason to think that you're any better. There's no reason to think that you're any holier. You've been cleansed by the same blood, and it's that of Jesus. And I suppose, how can I be so sure of this, right? You're thinking, some of these things are just terrible, Ron. Like, how can you be so sure that you're completely cleansed from it? I feel terrible about it. I mean, my conscience can't let it go. Let me point you to two marvelous truths about Jesus from the book of Hebrews. In Jesus, we've got a much deeper cleansing, a much deeper cleansing than the Jewish Day of Atonement. Let me read this. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Uh, the whole time in the Hebrews, the writer is just comparing the sacrifice of Jesus to the old sacrificial system. The day Jesus died on the cross for the great day of atonement that the, that the Jews had. And he's basically saying, with the how much more, he's saying, come on, if the blood of bulls and goats could somewhat atone for your sin, how much more the blood of God's only son, his precious son, which was shed, which was just spilled out for you at the cross, how much more will that cleanse your conscience? So much so to the point that you can actually have a true and living relationship with God, that you may serve him. Second one's this. Not only do you have a deeper cleansing, but you've got a more permanent removal. Let me read it. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. He does away with sins. He takes away our sins. You see, that's the problem with the Jewish Day of Atonement, isn't it? It's repeated year after year. You can't actually take away your sins if you've got to do it the following year. You know, it's funny because when I was preparing this sermon, I uh, looked up on the internet uh, on a Jewish website. They actually still celebrate the Day of Atonement. They have no temple. Um, they have no animal sacrifices, but they still celebrate the Day of Atonement. Why? Because their Messiah hasn't come. And so they're still performing this ritual 2,000 years later. But for us, our sins are permanently removed. You see, Christ was only sacrificed once. Do you remember where Christ was sacrificed? Do you remember where he was arrested? He was before the temple, uh, in the temple before the high priests. And the place that he was actually led to, to die on the cross, was not in the city, but it was out of the city, the place of the skull, Golgotha. And in a similar way, he's basically our scapegoat, isn't it? Like, just as a scapegoat, you laid your hands on the scapegoat and moved, and moved it out of the community. Sinful men laid their sinful hands, not just as a ritual, not as some sort of tokenistic, here I'm passing on my sins, but 
with their hands, they actually just mocked and beated and laid their sin on the Son of Man, on the Son of God, and let him out to be slaughtered. But it's that very thing that cleanses our consciences. It's the very thing that cleanses us from the deep inside, from our very, very, from the root of who we are, our conscience. And Christ then takes those sins and he purges them and just throws them away. And so I want to just assure you today, if you're a Christian, then you can have much to rejoice for. If there are sins in your life that have just weighed you down, you can let them go because Christ has thrown them away. You don't need to feel guilty about them. You don't need to beat yourself up about these things. We're a community of the cleansed. And the number one line that Paul's been saying, and I've got to finish off with it, is yay for Jesus. He's awesome, isn't he? I mean, he loves us so much that he just, he'd shed his blood for us. He'd offer his life on the cross. How about I pray to him and thank him for that? Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, you have been so kind to us. Uh, I can't begin to fathom, and we can't begin to fathom just what it cost you to have to uh, take yourself to the cross and for your blood to be spilled out and for you to just give up your very life. Um, we praise you that you cleanse us deep from our conscience and that you take away our sins and you remove them completely and permanently. And so please help us to just rejoice in this wonderful thing, knowing that we are cleansed before you. Uh, we have no reason to feel shame or guilt or any sense of filth. We are totally clean before you and we praise you for that as your people. Amen.